welcome to the GTFO podcast. This is Holly Kaplan. For those of you who don't know, GTFO means get the F out. In this podcast, we will be discussing how to get the F out. How to get the F out of a bad situation, predicament, or something you want to flat change. I'll be interviewing individuals who have had to GTFO. Expect to hear stories of those who experience situations of despair, pain, and fear. And the only way to escape it was to GTFO. Through this podcast, I want to give you, the listeners, the power and courage to make life changes should you need to GTFO. Today's word is persevere. I'm just going to start right there. Despite the title of this episode, this theme is really about perseverance. Think about this word for a moment. How has this word applied to your life? How many times in your life have you had challenges and struggles? And what did you do? Did you crumble? Did you fall apart? I've been there. I get it. I've been through some tough shit. Or did you overcome those challenges? Did you pick up yourself and bravely face what was in front of you and keep going? Well, my guest today, Joe Mullings, has done exactly that. I'm excited to speak with Joe as this episode will reveal his challenges with prescription drug addiction, healing from heart failure, and how he was able to persevere. But before we do so, here is more about Joe. Joe Mullings has been building companies and careers since 1989. He's the founder, chairman, and CEO of the Mullings Group, the world's leading search firm in the medical device industry. The firm is responsible for more than 7,000 successful searches representing more than 600 companies in the medical device industry. His clients are multi-billion dollar companies, including Johnson & Johnson, Google, Medtronic, Abbott, and Siemens, as well as emerging startup companies that are bringing to the market futuristic technologies like surgical robotics, telerobotics, artificial intelligence, and deep learning. He's also president and CEO of Dragonfly Stories, which I love. You have to see them if you have not. Let me just put that out there, which is the production company behind the video docu-series, True Future, of which he is the host. And by the way, he's terrific. He is also the founder of TNG Pulse and a MedTech News and Opinion website. He holds an engineering degree from the University of Dayton, Ohio. In 2020, Joe was appointed the Chief Visionary Office of MRI Incorporated. In his new position, he will guide the digital transformation of the MRI network with an eye toward bringing to it the inbound video storytelling technique for talent acquisition vis-a-vis social media, which he innovated at the Mullings Group. And that's Joe. That's a lot, Joe. Thank you for joining me today. I'm exhausted listening. I didn't even realize. Well, you're busy. You do so much. It amazes me. Well, thanks for having me on today. I'm uh, I'm excited. You and I had uh, a chance to chat uh, a couple weeks ago, and I hope you're healing well. By the way, oh, thank you. That's really nice of you. Yeah. That, that's nice of you. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about that. It's interesting how our worlds kind of parallel for this mm-hmm. podcast. Yeah. Well, I always like to talk about how I've met my guests, and I'm just going to go with that. I'm going to take that one, Joe. I started following Joe on LinkedIn. That's how we met. I was really intrigued by his post and content and meaning. For about a year, I was like, I got to follow that guy. I got to get to know that guy <laughs> because you're so honest and you're so educated on your topics and you bring to it um, your Dragonfly production. So you've done this amazing wrap up of all of your talents. And so I had to get to know you. I'm glad you did. I'm glad we had a chance to connect. And thank you for that. I mean, I'm just sort of living uh, out loud online with a lot of the lessons that I've learned and just sharing them with people. Uh, So 
the LinkedIn platform is great for that, especially more than any other platform, in my opinion. It is. And and Joe, your your content connects with a lot of people because it is very authentic. And it's no bullshit. It's not, you know, it's not filtered. It's like, this is what it is, man. This is what's happening. And I love it. So before we get into my line of questioning today, would you tell us about yourself? Give us some color to who you are. Hmm. So uh, born on Long Island, Hicksville. Yes, there's such a town as Hicksville. (laughs) It's a thing. Uh, It's a thing. It's a place. Uh, Born in 1962. uh, Grew up in Levittown. Moved to Hicksville when I was super young. Uh, Then grew up in a uh, single parent house after about the age, I think it was 11 or 12. Uh, Had a real strong mom. And uh, had a work ethic instilled at a very young age. You know, in New York, they had a few newspapers. They had a daily news that came out in the morning and they had a news day that came out in the afternoon. So I had uh, both of those routes. And back in the day, then you used to have to file for working papers. And uh, if you're over 15 or 16, I think it was to prove you can work in certain places. And I forged mine at like 14 to say I was 16 to be able to work in some restaurants. So I was always brought up in a, I was brought up in a household of you work, you know, you work and you get good grades, but you work. Um, and that carried over. I uh, went to University of Dayton, um, played D1 soccer there, uh, was a walk-on in junior year, was captain and worked my way. Probably the least skilled player on the team, but <laughs> I like to outwork everybody in that area. Uh, and then from there, spent a couple of years in engineering after I graduated, realized that I loved engineering, but I didn't like big corporate. And uh had a few years off in between there and went over to the dark side and got into headhunting in uh, 1989, served a two-year internship uh, underneath a wonderful uh, pair of businessmen, Sebastian Lavolsi and Bill Joes on Long Island. And then uh, when they hired me, I told them two years after working for them, I'd want to open up my own firm. They giggled and they said, sure, <laughs> if you make enough money, <laughs> go for it, kiddo. And uh, two years and about three weeks to the day in um, January of 92, I opened up my own firm down in Coral Gables, Florida. So that's the uh, the quick and dirty on me. Isn't that funny? They laughed at you. Look at you now. <laughs> well, they laughed at me um, with love. I don't think they laughed at me um, right with love. They did. Yeah. Yeah. Right. In a good way. In a, in a good a, way. In a good in way. A, yeah. In a good way. Well, I'm very impressed with how you've built your company and how many organizations you work with and how many people you have placed. Mm. So, um, you have a, you know, you have a very deep background and, you know, I'm very impressed with that. Okay. I'm going to hop right to the point here. Yeah. Tell me about your back problems. What happened? How, walk us through how your back affected you and your life. Yeah. So, you know, I was always an athlete. I was always involved in combat sports. Um, I hold a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. I hold a third degree black belt in Aikido, um, also in Kempo. And, you know, so I was always, always like contact uh, and controlled violence. It was just always interesting to me. And I was also a big lifter at the time. And I think uh, I was one of those kids that graduated high school at 139 and then graduated college at 185. You know, I grew later in life and uh, I started lifting pretty heavy and always enjoyed for those that lift most people don't like legs i used to love legs day and heavy squatter um and then while i got into martial arts uh 
there was a lot of contact there, especially in the sport of Aikido, because there's a lot of throws. It's a little like judo. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also took up the crazy sport of golfing um, as I got a little older uh, in my 20s, late 20s, early 30s. And um, none of those are good for your back. Being thrown around, uh, break falling, squatting heavy, uh, even with good posture is never good for you. And then golf where you're prone and you're rotating. And uh, I got pretty obsessive about golf playing, you know, anywhere from 72 holes plus every weekend and all those things. And with being blessed with a genetically horrible back as lineage shows in my family, um, I blew out a disc um, back in the uh, in my early 30s and uh, was was in a lot of pain at the time. And uh, it really, it really hurt because I was also at the time launching my business in 92, 93, 94 down in Coral Gables, I had mentioned earlier. And it's sort of, if you've ever had back pain or, and I can only speak to severe back pain, you know, I'm sure people have had other pain in their life. But when you're, when you're given a brutal back pain, um, you will trade away anything to relieve that pain. And I do mean that if anybody's listening and they've been involved, uh, you would trade anything for relief. And I, I got to that point um, with my back uh, and people weren't quick to jump into surgery. I went into rolfing, I went into massage, I went into all kinds of uh, very unique um, sort of therapies and trying to relieve the back pain. Uh, and then that started me down a slippery slope uh, of uh, uh, using prescription drugs to alleviate the pain. And um, that, uh, that delivered me to a hellhole of, I would call it addiction uh, mm-hmm. to painkillers uh, in the 90s. How many years, Joe, did you go? trying to find other methods to deal with the pain. Cause I have back pain. You and I just talked about that. I just had a mm. surgery seven weeks ago. I mean, yeah. I know how impactful it is. How many years did you go with trying other methods, including prescription drugs? Yeah. Yeah. So I went, I would say it was at least two years struggling, um, with yeah. really bad back pain, uh, until one day I, I, I literally, I was, I remember I was, I was, doing some movements and it felt like somebody took a gun and just shot me and I fell to the ground and I couldn't get out. Um, but I was dealing with sciatica, uh, constantly for almost two straight years. I mean, I, I was thinking about it, you know, going back, knowing we're going to be chatting today about it. I remember, um, laying on the floor of my office while my partner and I were building our business with my back on the ground, my feet elevated up on a chair and, spending eight, 10 hours a day on the telephone, talking to clients, talking to candidates, uh, while full on, you know, not understanding I was creeping into an addiction to Percocets at the time. Uh, and just trying to manage my way through it, building a business, being a young single guy, nobody to watch over me, uh, just, you know, creeped into a, um, a very, very uh, dark time that uh, I had to eventually pull myself out of. Wow. Now, that's you were dedicated, let's just say, 
<laughs> to lay in your back <laughs> yeah. and try to function and be normal. It's very difficult. It's very mm-hmm. difficult to ignore that pain, mm-hmm. you know, to think and to work. It's mm-hmm. hard, much less when you're using prescription drugs. So, you know. Yeah, there were, there were, you know, I remember clearly that um, I would take Percocet. And back in the 90s, you can get, you could doctor shop, you can get Percocets. Actually, you could, via fax machine, pretty much get in scripts across the board. Um, my sister at the time was uh, a disabled vet and she belonged to the VA and the VA would give out prescription drugs, like literally in coffee cans. Um, and I used to go over her house and, you know, grab a fistful out of her coffee can, pop them in my pocket and would cry myself to sleep at night with a bottle of red wine and no less than five or six after taking six or seven or eight during the workday to glide through. But what was interesting is they had a different effect on me. They didn't make me sleepy or, uh, you know, uh, uh, inadequate in my workday, they actually had the opposite effect on me. They, 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 they had me chatty. Uh, they had me comfortably numb. I think I was a functioning addict at the time and didn't realize it um, mm-hmm. at all. And and it took finally surgery for me to realize I was addicted because if you have sciatica, and those that have experienced it, it's it's brutal. I mean, you can't sleep. You can't lay sideways. You move your leg and it's like a lightning jolt through. Uh, I used to break out in a sweat sitting in the car, just driving to the office 10 minutes because sitting in that position was intolerable. Yep. I, I was building a business and to me it was like gritted out. Come on, you know, just get it done. Uh, and oh, by the way, if you want to mask some of that pain, take a couple of these. Uh, and um, it was interesting, you know, that, when you're prescribed these controlled substances and eventually you start to doctor shop them, but they were still prescribed, you know, no one is immune to a physical dependency, especially when you're trying to avoid pain. Exactly. It's just, exactly. it's yeah, no, nobody is. In talking about your pain, mm. did, did you have friends and family that knew how much pain you were in and did, did they know what you were trying to do to medicate yourself or did, or was that something you kept to yourself? Yeah, I kept it quiet. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I was working so much that um, I wasn't around family. As I mentioned, I was a single guy at the time. Uh, right. So there was nobody, you know, it's funny. The way I categorize addiction is when you have a need for something so great that it then becomes evident that it either affects your health or affects mm-hmm. your personal relationships, right? That to me is the definition of addiction. So whether it's drugs, alcohol, gambling, sex, any addiction, it is enough or it's not an addiction until your health and or relationships are compromised. So mm-hmm. I, I had a work relationship with a dear friend who's still a dear friend today. We we're actually college roommates. And, you know, I think he knew about it, but you know, he was an athlete too. So it was just like grind through it. Let's go. I didn't have a wife or sig other or, um, anybody who were like, dude, what, you know, you're incoherent, you know, or you're driving a car the wrong way. So I didn't have anybody leaning in on me. So it became normal after 
you know, a year or two of, of hammering back a bottle or two of wine and, you know, Gosh. in aggregate 15 plus perks a day and Gosh. just, you know, going to sleep to wake up the next day. So there was nobody there for me to see the effect that the relationship had that it was right. damaging. And so there wasn't somebody to call me out. Okay. So you went through it by yourself. You're by yourself. Yeah. For the most part, yeah. I, I, I went yeah. through it by myself. And um, yeah, then I came out of the surgery. Uh, I finally went in for surgery and got it fixed. And it was amazing. You know, you wake up the next day and you're like, oh, this is great. No pain. And, you know, some of us are lucky with back surgeries. Others are not. Yep. And then um, came out and then the docs still gave you scripts, right? Here you go. You know, take mm -hmm. these. You know, um, and it was funny. I didn't like Oxy, didn't like Vicodin, made it me sick to my stomach. But boy, did those Percocets chemically <laughs> speak to me, man. Woo! They were, they were, they were mother's little helper or daddy's little helper to steal it from the stones in the, you know, 70s. They work. They work. When I got out of the hospital a couple of weeks ago from my yeah. procedure, they, they, I took them in the hospital. They would not prescribe them for me outside of the hospital. Like, no, yeah. you're done. You're, yeah. You got to take something different. I was like, but yeah. these work. Yeah. I like these. Yeah. 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 I had permagrin all the time and, and, and all that going on. <laughs> but um, I realized I had an issue when I got out and the pain was gone. But, but when the script ran out um, from the dock, I started to find I was not not started to find I was driven to uh, seek out how I could get more Percocets. Mm -hmm. And then that was when it hit me. Like I no longer could rationalize that journey due to the pain. I then realized, hold on, there's not pain here anymore, but there's this still uh, uh, need. Right. Because I dare not call it addiction. There's still this need for me to get through my day. And then I think it was about the time Brett Farr, for some reason, when I go back to that time, it was the same time as Farr back in the 90s, uh, came out and said, I got an addiction to these things. And, and, you know, I took a very similar path. I literally looked at it one day overnight and said, no, done, done. Um, and uh, drew the line uh, and just stopped. Uh, and that was the next 30 to 60 days of probably one of the toughest times of my life is trying to, um, trying to get out of that, trying to get out of that, trying to, trying to, trying to something that kept you warm and cozy and comfortable and, you know, um, trying to get out of that. And that, th those were another 30, 60 days of sleepness, sweats, um, excuses, constant, constant, um, attraction to easily return to that. And I, my heart goes out to the people I see today mm -hmm. who, um, you know, it's a thin line between healthcare and hell. Um, and, um, that addiction zone man is, is, is a pencil line thick, uh, between hell and therapy. Um, and then God forbid, you know, then you have to go to the street drugs and then you, cause you can't get the prescription drugs anymore. So you slide over to the street drugs and there's just so many people, 
um, who found their way there, the on-ramp was prescription drugs. Isn't that terrible? And they probably never saw that from the beginning. They no, thought that'll never no happen. No, there's no way. And when you sit on the other side of that, knowing what you know when you sit on the other side of that, um, there's no way you would punch that ticket um, voluntarily. It's just no. unless you were absolutely maybe a small percentage of the population are doomed, would be doomed and want to, you know, go down there. But there's nobody who would who would select that in their clear mind. But you don't know that's the path you're on. Right. Right. Until you experience it, you don't know. Well, I would describe your GTFO moment as Brett Favre. No offense to Brett Favre. <laughs> it sounds like that was like, you know what? I got a GTFO and change things. And I, I'm impressed with the way you went through it by yourself. Again, you broke your addiction alone is what it sounds like. You didn't go, to, I'm assuming you didn't go to rehab. I'm assuming you no, did it in those no, terms. Your no. time. And, I, and, I, and I didn't go to rehab, you know, and you know, rehab, people use, you know, you can be judged as a moral failing or a weakness or inability to realize that you've slipped into addiction. And uh, again, it's like, never me, never me, you know. Um, right. But uh, I, I, I like to work my, it's my own personal approach to things is I really like to work my way out of tough situations. Um, and I have no no judgment on people that look for assistance, counseling, support. Uh, there's no judgment there. I personally have always um, wanted to work myself out of any dire situation, whether it's financial, emotional, physical, relational. I pride myself on doing that. And it doesn't make me stronger or better or weaker. It's just... That's what I'm predisposed for. It works for you. It does. And you know what's interesting is um, I read this somewhere, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but it really hit home. You know, a wounded and healed person very well may have something to teach you. Mm -hmm. um, and I think um, some of my insights that I like to share with the world come from that place of an observation of having a fault or a weakness or a gap and then me working through it and unwinding it and uncovering it and putting it out in plain sight and then those lessons stay with me and then I try and share those as a work in progress with the people that follow me. Right. And in a way, you help them heal that way. You help point them in the right direction. I'm or a shine a light on the stuff that they're just absolutely looking the other way on. But you call, you don't call them out on it, but you let them know that, hey, like, like if I asked you to sit on the edge of your bed every morning and really ask the question, what are you fucking up in your life? Like, and really ask the question, like, you want to know the answer. You will find out very, very, very quickly what it is. I need a pen and some paper. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? right. But I think that's the biggest gift you can bring to somebody is, is what are you doing every day that's really fucking your life up and call yourself out on it. And sometimes you need people around you who have the courage to be like, 
you know, look, I'm as damaged as you are and I'm a work in progress and you too can be because we're walking around in this Instagram life that nobody, nobody, once you peel back the surface, Mm -hmm. um, is free of massive faults, liabilities, and darkness. We all have it. Life is very dark. Life is really, it's amazing to me that we're all so happy because there's so much shit that can go wrong, but based upon this great world we live in and so many good-hearted people that it doesn't turn to shit. Um, and, and so I don't know. I just, I think that, I think people need to feel comfortable with saying, no, you're not all right how you are, you know, enough with those memes. You're not, you, you could be so much more than you are today. You could be so much more. And when people tell us you're okay, like you are, they're really screwing you. And that goes back to answering your, asking yourself that question every day is what am I doing to really screw up my life? And you know, stop with, you're just perfect how you are. No, you're not. You can be so much more. Right. We all have something to work on. Yeah. That's the truth. It's yeah. the truth. Huh. I, I agree with that. And life is not shiny like Instagram shows every day. That's bullshit. That's no. not, it's not true. This, you're right. It is dark. And that is the reality. It's gritty. It's gritty. Yeah. You don't get out of it alive. You know, it's a, it's a, it's, 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 it's a mortal game. And and, and the people, if you go back in history, the people who have moved the most, whether they're writers or songwriters or artists, they have chosen to live their worlds out loud with their content. Um, and they have been incredibly faulty, damaged souls who maybe have explored areas that the average person chooses not to. And I think that artists are always working their way through some sort of healing. I also think it's why, you know, probably on par, they end up um, over-indexed towards uh, less than optimal finishes to their life. That's a way to say it. Yeah. they're, They're open with their struggles, you know? Yeah. And I, I think I'd rather end up sliding into home base, ripped up, torn up, damaged, a uh, bunch of torn muscles, some really tough stories to share, and bouncing that last check I ever wrote, um, rather than trying to walk into a curated ending that was never really who you were on the whole journey anyway. Right. It makes you free. Mm-hmm. It makes you free yeah. So, yeah. um, another question for you on this. Yeah. This is a good segue. How did your life change once you were free? How did mm. your life change of prescription addiction? Yeah, it, it wasn't evangelical. It was not evangelical moment at all. Um, it was realizing I was very susceptible um, to. Uh, needing a crutch of some sorts. Uh, it allowed me to call out. It, it, it gave me it gave me precursor behaviors to other things that might in the future pull me down a less than optimal path of any other type of addiction or um, behavior that I knew could be destructive. So it it it, it told me that I was very 
very susceptible to mm-hmm. things because as an extremist, you know, as with a work ethic, and when I pick something to do, I go really hard. Uh, I think that extremist um, mentality allowed that door of addiction to open. Right. right. So it, it, it has me stand guard. And, and, that, and now I have a fantastic relationship with my wife um, right. of 20 plus years who stands guard well before <laughs> my alarm bells go off. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Good for her. We like her, Joe. Yeah. We like her. I, I admire her 20 plus years. So that's another accomplishment yeah. in itself there. Well, I appreciate your honesty in that too, because it's not simple and it's real. And I like how you had a you had a built-in alarm system for yourself and for your wife to say, hey, this is not going to work for Joe. I can see it yeah. coming. Not yeah. a thing. Yeah. Okay. So that's not your only GTFO. You have another life-changing GTFO. And yeah. I'm going to go and start that section with I like this. Take us to the cycling event in Mallorca, Spain. I mean, that, that's a completely different shift. So we're yeah. just going to here, Mallorca. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, huh. there's a few aha moments in my life, but Mallorca was one of them. So I was a competitive cyclist, um, bicycle cyclist, and uh, especially time trials. Time trials are where you put yourself on the bike and you go 40 kilometers, 20 kilometers out and 20 kilometers back, or just 40 kilometers out, and you race just against the clock. Um, that's one of the categories in cycling. You see it in the Tour de France. I think there's two of them in that. But um, I also enjoyed um, competitive cycling. So as usual, I got into it big time. I was over in Mallorca, Spain, training with Hunter Allen, who was a great cycling coach. And we had... Uh, been about four or five days into the training. Uh, I was there with a bunch of other cyclists and um, we had just finished a big climb the day before and we uh, were doing a warm down ride the next morning. So we came out of the parking lot and Mallorca is sort of like a moonscape. Uh, It's like all craggly rock. If you've ever been there, it's gorgeous, gorgeous country, but uh, part of Spain. But what I mean by country is topography and beautiful, but very unique. And we're going down the road two by two in the Peloton. And all of a sudden, my vision starts to occlude. My hands start to shake. Mm. And uh, the bike starts to pitch to the left into oncoming traffic. And the last thing I remember is just throwing my body to the right. And I heard a scream. And then that was it. And I was out. I woke up um, down in the side of the road, uh, pretty beat up, uh, helmet uh, shattered for those tough guys who want to ride a bike without a helmet. Um, that's a moment that I will remember that you always wear a helmet. Yeah. And, um, the whole team was sitting around me and we didn't know what happened. We thought it was dehydration from the big climb the day before. So we went back to the hotel. Interestingly enough, there was an interventional cardiologist there who looked me over and uh, he said, ah, it might be dehydration. Uh, it could be a pulmonary embolism, but, uh, you know, let's, let's just get you back to the States that night. I couldn't breathe. I was laying in bed and uh, straight horizontal prone and I couldn't breathe. And so I had to, you know, sit up the whole night, just gasping for air. And, um, we headed to the airport, flew back, got back here, uh, went to the OR. Uh, I did not want to stay in uh, for those wondering why the hell wouldn't I go to the hospital, Mallorca, I've been in the healthcare industry for a long time. 
I was not going to be in a Mallorca, Spain hospital. Um, <laughs> you knew where to go. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I took the, you know, and you could roll your eyes and say, you know, intercontinental flight. Now, I didn't know at the time, which we'll get to in a second. I was in the hospital. Dear friend Adam Bello was the uh, ER doc, and he set me up, and they took a chest X-ray. They took an EKG. Uh, they took uh, uh, blood. Uh, uh, and Adam immediately came back into the room within 10 minutes and he looked at me with tears in his eyes and he said, you're in full congestive heart failure. Now that was like, what? I mean, I was a strapping athlete. Um, I was in great shape. I, I knew what heart failure was because my company built two big heart failure companies, LVAD companies, left ventricular assist devices that get implanted in you when your heart fails, your left ventricle fails. So I knew what that meant. And that's usually a 60 year old person or somebody who had substance abuse, um, you know, at scale. And neither of those really um, um, subs were, were part of it. Uh, so they rushed me upstairs, the hospital, and my ejection fraction rate was 12. A normal human being's around 65. So okay. my heart was pumping out blood at one fifth the function. Oh my gosh. Uh, and, um, you know, so I'm at the time, what was I? Those, this was 2014. So at the time I was in my early fifties and, um, I'm sitting there going, how do I get here? I'm like, wow. So, um, you know, about 25% of the cases are idiopathic in nature, meaning that they can't tell why, but, uh, it ended up highly likely that I was, I, I'd spent a number of years in and out of Brazil I was down there bringing fighters up for the UFC. It's another business I had we didn't touch on. And I remember about a year and a half, two years before that, getting violently sick in Brazil um, with a virus um, and being locked in or, or closed in a hotel room for two or three days, feeling like I was on the verge of death. And um, Brazil is known as one of the regions of the world that these viruses will attack and uh, potentially attack the heart muscle in particular. So that combined with me training as a, um, a, a time trialist and a cyclist, never giving my heart a chance to rest and recover, but every day training for two or three hours, taking the heart, sitting at between 140 and 180 beats per minute, per minute for two hours at a time, three hours at a time, and doing it again, again, going back to the extreme personality, um, never gave my heart a chance to rest. And then in Mallorca, Spain, that's, that, that, that string just broke. Um, and, uh, it just literally overnight that syncope event occurred and, um, we were in heart failure. That's frightening. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Time bomb. You didn't even time, know. Time bomb. Yeah. Yeah. Time bomb. Well, I, I'm, I'm impressed by the connection back to Brazil. You're like, wait a second, that wasn't right. That virus, you know, mm -hmm. and you put them together. Mm -hmm. I mean, that makes that makes sense. That's very scary. Mm -hmm. And you know, there was a lot of signs along the way. Like I was a, I'm an engineer. So metrics mattered to me as I was training as a cyclist. I always had my Garmin on and I'd want to know my power output and I'd want to know my heart rate and I'd, I'd want to know my respiration rate and, 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 and all that stuff. And, we had data from the Garmin that my heart rate would jump very, very quick in the start of a ride. And I even investigated it with a dear friend of mine who is a cardiologist. And he said, that's a weird metric, but how are you feeling? I said, I feel great. 
But when you go back, the reason why the heart was jumping at such a rate was because it wasn't getting a full stroke of taking the blood in and pushing the blood out. So it had these short abbreviated strokes in order to attempt to move the same volume. So in retrospect, I was monitoring heart failure and the metrics were showing up, but nobody could, nobody would have been able to know to connect it. So it's, it's super interesting in retrospect, being an engineer and bringing, you know, passive patient monitoring, you know, to light. So it's crazy. Right. Now you understand it. Now I, yeah, there were signs the whole way. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, how did you, how did you heal from heart Mm. failure? How did you overcome? That yeah. was another big challenge. Yeah. Huge. So, so a, an EF of 12 is never a good sign. Um, and the stats with heart failure is 50% of the patients die within five years uh, of being diagnosed with it. So, you know, but those are numbers, right? So that's one of the things that right away, and I'd say there was a combination of things that had me recover. And today I'm, I'm, at, I'm at an EF of 55 to 58, which is nearly normal, which has got the Terrific. Doc's scratching their head. I have a, um, <laughs> I have a, a Boston t- Scientific ICD implanted in the side on me just in case uh, insurance policy. But to heal, I, I had a combination of things. One was, one was pharmaceuticals, right? Um, the other was diet and lifestyle. And the third that I still give a lot of weight to was this um, amazing energy healer that was a friend of the family. Uh, and again, remember, I'm based on evidence and I'm an engineer and I'm all about um, empirical data, but um, I'll just call her Lisa out of respect for her. Lisa was a friend of the family and we knew she had healed uh, a number of individuals with her um, gifts. And so the very first day I was in the um, hospital in the heart failure ward, I called up Lisa and I said, hey, Lee, uh, and I explained to her where I was. And um, she listened through the phone and she said, it's going to be okay. I said, no, I know, Elise, it's going to, no, no. She goes, Joe, it's going to be okay. She's going to listen. Tomorrow morning, outside your window, there's going to be a dragonfly on the window. And that's going to be a sign that you're going to be okay. I said, what do you mean, Lee? I mean, what? she goes, well, after we hang up, look what the spirit animal of the dragonfly is, and we'll talk tomorrow. So I, you know, look up the spirit animal, the dragonfly, and it's like, um, you know, like one of the oldest insects on the earth and ability to move in any direction um, and uh, 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 has incredible, you know, a power of genesis, right? So... I was like, okay, Lee, yeah, you know, great, thanks. Thanks for the pep talk. Woke up the next morning, um, two dragonflies bouncing against the window. There it was. And I'm like up on the fifth floor, right? Sixth floor, whatever it was. uh, Bouncing against the window. And I'm like, you know, that that was like, that wasn't like, oh, everything's going to be okay. But that was the door that opened to me understanding that, some people have insight to things that we don't. Um, there's more than what we see on this earth that we can tangibly put our hands on. Um, there's a reason why uh, things happen for they do. Like, I don't know if you're married or not, or you have a sig other, but 
why that person out of the billions of others did that connection happen, right? There's these energies in this world with the millions of people we meet in our lifetime. Why is there that one, right? And so once I got that dragonfly, we started to move down that path of energy healing um, and uh, opening up doors, closing doors, uh, exploring things. Uh, and, you know, sure enough, uh, between the pharmaceutical, uh, the lifestyle, uh, the energy healing, uh, being supported by great people and, and great teammates, uh, hence the name for Dragonfly Stories, uh, which is, you know, our production company. You know, um, we can move in many directions. We're not just a search firm and it's ended up being, you know, so, so interestingly, interestingly truthful. Um, yeah, we then for the next four or five years, forward our way out, you know, uh, percentage by percentage of ejection fraction rate uh, into a healthier um, mindset. And, you know, you asked me earlier, what did the drug addiction um, teach me. It, yeah. it, it taught me, a, like I said, something to be able to, you know, see precursor signals to bad behavior. But boy, that heart failure was a big reset on me. There was, there was a lot of things that I was doing incorrectly and to people, uh, consciously and unconsciously in my relationships that, um, made for a sick heart. Wow. Um, a friend gave me a book called The Heart's Code. If uh, you're in healthcare or you know somebody with um, a heart condition, go read The Heart's Code. And the empirical data in there on heart failure patients, heart transplant patients, and how the heart itself, no doubt, is the gateway to what you're putting out in our lives, rather than it just being a physical pump, may give you a new perspective on things. Wow. I'm going to have to buy that one on Kindle. Oh my when we gosh. Hang. It's, it, 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 if, if you're in the healthcare industry, and even if you're a clinician, you will read that and be like, hmm, yeah, okay, there might be something here. And, and I'm, talking about, I'm talking about patients who had donated their heart, those great souls that donated their heart, and then the recipient of that, recipient of that and the number of things that were passed on to them as validated by the families who the donor then visited with years later. It's crazy. So the heart itself is a gateway to all the energy you put out in this world. And mine needed a repair. It needed a reset, I should say. That's, that's a beautiful story, actually. I had the chills when you were talking about dragonflies and hearts. Mm. And, uh, um, okay. I'm going to ask you this. Yeah. Do you think there was a purpose that you had to go through all this? Like looking oh, at yourself. Sure. I mean, you've had to live through so much. Why do you think that is? Oh, gosh, that's an easy one. I mean, I, these were gifts to me. They, 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 they were gifts. I mean, they were, we only, only learn when we're in a bad situation or we're a bad outcome. You don't learn from pleasurable uh, good things. Just think back. You, you've got some of your most amazing lessons at the things that went sideways. And, you know, in those two instances, those are pretty remarkably intense sideways things. And the lessons I took out of there, and then hence helped me become a better teacher. Um, 
those were blessings. And, and I don't mean blessings in a religious way. I just mean blessings to be able to um, share those lessons through other actions that I have with people uh, or, you know, groups of people or people I haven't even met that I've been fortunate enough to share things with in my writings with. Um, those were amazing blessings. And for those who live a life um, without tragedy, uh, I sort of feel bad for those people. And um, I mean that in the most loving way is some of my most amazing experiences have come on the back end of how I process tragedy. And again, there's less optimal and more optimal outcomes. And I don't have a good or bad definition in my life. I have less than optimal, more than optimal, because that keeps me in motion. Right. The, the second you assign good or bad is judgmental. But when you give more optimal or less optimal, that keeps you in motion, allowing you to move through the shit storms that life is going to bestow upon you. Right. Well, it's how you process it. Right. So there's tragedy and then there's the victim um, coming out the other side. And then there's tragedy, and then there's the empowered coming out the other side. And so you're going to decide along the way, which of those paths are you going to go after? And that's why I said earlier, like a wounded, healed person may have something to teach you. Yes. Yes, because whatever happened empowered them, and they thought they could take it to somebody else. They may, yeah. I agree with you. And that's so valuable. Well, I wanted to use the word perseverance throughout this episode. Mm -hmm. And you know, you know why your story reveals perseverance and I'll let Joe tell you why, but um, I'd like to know from you what advice you have for our listeners who have experienced such challenges or similar situations and how do you recommend they get through it too? Yeah. As bad as things think, as bad as things appear to be at that moment, you are always better than them. And um, it's true because otherwise you're just going to die, and then you're not going to then you're not going to know anyway because you won't be there conscious to see. So you're always stronger than you are always stronger than what's happening to you. So that's number one. You're better than you give yourself credit for. Mm -hmm. The human race itself is incredibly strong. Uh, and a lot of times it's just sort of trying to get your arms around shrinking timelines and don't try and boil the ocean with whatever it is you're trying to recover from drive through, but manage timelines. You can have this amazing goal way out there and that goal can be recovery or it can be overcoming, but give yourself mm -hmm. these micro wins on a daily basis that are just enough to stretch you to make you a hair stronger that day. Um, and always know that you are much, much more than either people tell you or you resign yourself to. Um, and that would be my advice on that. And the perseverance comes into that hall um, that things only are over when you quit. That's the only time they're over. Um, so if you can right. keep your solution set in motion, and it's not linear. So it's going to be a lot of days, one step forward, two steps back. 
three steps forward, one step back. So that comes back to timelines and you're always much better than you think you are. And you're much more capable of taking on more pressure and more pain um, than you give yourself credit for. I am so lucky that I got to hear that from you just now. Everything you said, I really connected with. It makes me want to keep going. So I love hearing that from you. And what's on your arm, Joe? (laughs) There's a big tattoo that says persevere. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's who you are. It's who you are. And I I wanted our listeners to know that. It's been a pleasure, more than a pleasure to, to talk to you today. And before we go, I would love for you to tell us how listeners can get connected with you and learn more about you. Sure. Love to. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, so website, joemullings.com. Uh, you can also follow me on LinkedIn, which is Joe Mullings, right, on LinkedIn. And then if you want to check out some cool things uh, that Holly uh, gave a shout out to, uh, where it's almost uh, like Anthony Bourdain meets MedTech around the world, uh, check out truefuture.tv. I'd be uber thankful if you... Uh, shared that with your friends. Uh, we've, we're very, very proud of that uh, project and initiative. Yes. For our listeners, get tuned into that. It's terrific. Joe is a super host. It's very informative. The, um, the cinematography, if you will, I'm not sure if I'm using the right word for that, is terrific. It's modern um, and it's very engaging. So Thanks. definitely, definitely get tuned into that. So. Alrighty, Joe. Well, thank you so, so much for sharing your personal GTFO stories today. I know you have inspired and empowered so many people out there now, and I'm thrilled to have you. Thanks for the opportunity to share and uh, keep up your great work, Holly. You bet. Thank you. All right, GTFO listeners, that is a wrap. Thank you. And I will talk to you guys again real soon. Thank you for joining me today on the GTFO podcast. This is Holly Kaplan. To connect with me for confidence coaching or speaking engagements, please connect with me at hollykaplan.com or find me on Instagram at GTFO underscore podcast. Thanks. Thanks.